You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message and welcome to the tribe. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, am your brother and companion in tribulation, the kingdom, and the patience that are found in Jesus. I was exiled on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit realm on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying to me, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. When I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. And walking among the lampstands, I saw someone like a son of man, wearing a full-length robe with a golden sash over his chest. His head and his hair were like wool, white as glistening snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were gleaming like bright metal, as though they were glowing in a fire, and his voice was like the roar of many rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was shining like the brightness of the blinding sun. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet, as good as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, and I heard his reassuring voice saying, Don't yield to fear. I am the beginning and I am the end, the living one. I was dead, but now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys that unlock death and the unseen world. Now I want you to write what you have seen, what is and what comes after the things that I reveal to you. The mystery of the lampstands and the seven stars is this. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the seven stars in my right hand are the seven messengers of the seven churches. 
the very words of God. God to us today. And, you know, some years ago, I read this book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it was a fairly popular book back in those days by Stephen Covey. And I remember one of the early chapters leads us through this mental exercise. And if you've read the book, you remember the exercise where he encouraged you to think about you're in the parking lot of a funeral home. And you walk into the funeral home and you hear the soft organ music and you see and smell the flowers that are there. And then you walk down the aisle of the funeral home and you see some people that you know, perhaps some friends or some family members. And then you get to the front of the funeral home, you look in the casket and realize that the funeral is yours when you look and see your face in that casket. And then four speakers are going to stand up and talk about you. One of them is a family member of yours. The second speaker is going to be a friend of yours. The third speaker is going to be someone that you worked with or went to school with. And then the fourth speaker is going to be someone that you went to church with. And I guess the point of the exercise is to get you to think about what will people say about you at your death? at your funeral? Will they speak words that reflect the values that you held dear while you lived here on the earth? And Stephen Covey calls that concept living with the end in mind. He wants us to live our lives now with that end in mind. But for the sake of our conversation today, connected to the book of Revelation, I want to add one more ending to the little exercise, and it's this. Imagine, if you will, after you see your face in that casket, then you're immediately transported into the presence of Almighty God. And all of a sudden, it dawns on you, it may not matter that much what people on earth say about you because you are standing in the presence of Almighty God, and He is about to determine your eternal destiny. And he's about to determine the kinds of rewards that you will enjoy forever and ever and ever for all eternity future. So it seems that your death is not just an ending, but it's actually a beginning. See? And so look, that is something that motivates us to live with the end in mind. There's way more to it than just this life. But we want to, from the book of Revelation, learn to live with the end in mind. And that's appropriate for those of us that believe in Jesus. And it's appropriate to consider for those of you who have never begun a relationship with Christ. You're what we call a spiritual investigator. and You're searching. You're trying to figure out if God is legit and for real. And look, if this book is true, then it has huge ramifications for your life and for mine to get us to consider how we can live with the end in mind. So will you say that slogan with me that we'll repeat throughout this series, live with the end in mind, when I point to you, whether you're uh, worshiping online or here in the room, let's say it together. Ready? Here we go. Live with the end in mind. Good. So it's a shame that more people are, uh, you know, aren't reading the book of Revelation and that people are afraid to read it, right? Because there's such a blessing in it, there's the blessing of being patiently prepared. Look at me, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. 
It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because, look at this last phrase, the time is near. Remember that phrase, the time is near. And if you hang with us throughout this series, it's going to take us several months to do. And we'll take some breaks throughout the series, you know, for, I guess, one-off services throughout the year. But it's going to take us a long time to get through Revelation. And if you hang with us, you'll hear the entire book of Revelation read out loud. But look, the blessing is not just for those that read it out loud, but it's for those that take it to heart and do something about it. I've heard a lot of people, you know, trumpet the idea that they believe the Bible, right? But you really only believe the part of the Bible that you do, right? We want to be doers of the word, not hearers only who deceive themselves, right? But remember, John says the time is near. Now, we don't really know how near the time is, do we? In fact, if you read through the New Testament of the Bible, You'll see some of these people saying, you know, the time is near. Like when Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians, you know, the people that lived in uh, Thessalonica, you know, they were called the Thessalonians, and he, and he told them the time is near. And you know what some of them did? Th- th- they just stopped working, and they just started chilling and receiving their stimulus checks from their church, you know, and they were just, you know, on the meal program at their church. And so Paul had to write them another letter. And in the second letter, he corrected him. He said, you got to get off your butts and you got to get to work. And we're going to make a new policy around this church that if you don't work, you don't eat. That's what Paul had to say to this group of people. Now, Peter dealt with some people that were having the wrong reaction to the end times as well. And this group of people said, hey, you've been saying the time is near for a long time. And we're sitting here and nothing's happening. We don't see Jesus coming or anything. So, you know, people have been saying that for a long time and it's not happening, right? Well, Peter corrects that group of people. And I want to take you to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 to see what, uh, how, how Peter encouraged them. He said, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So it's been basically two days in Jesus' perception of time since he rose again from the dead, right? But look at the next part of the verse. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And you can really see God's heart in this passage because it's not like God's trying to play a game with us. I'm coming. I'm not coming. I'm coming. I'm not coming. He's not trying to hide or, you know, play some type of game, but he's just being patient because he loves you and he loves other people so much. He's just waiting for more and more people to come to him and experience his love and experience his grace and experience his mercy and healing. That's his heart for us. See, and so when we live with the end of mind, we're patiently prepared. And when you're patiently prepared, you don't want to fall into the traps of people who blow it off and think it's not ever going to happen. And you also don't want to go cray cray and start setting dates. Okay. So we've seen a lot of crazy people in the world. Like some of you remember 2012 when people thought, oh, the Mayan calendar ended. And so the end of the world's going to happen. I remember standing on this stage right here in this room saying in 2012, the end is not going to happen in 2012 like the Mayans think. Okay. Because if Jesus was going to come in 2012, he'd change his mind because he says nobody knows when the day is. Right. And some of you have lived long enough to watch the watch. Tower magazine of the Jehovah's Witnesses predict 
the second coming and the end of the world. I don't even know how many times now, just like a, a bunch of times, and they're wrong every single time. And you know what? They're not going to learn. They're keep. They're going to keep setting dates, and they're going to continue to be wrong. And the next time you see them set a date, just tell all your friends, and you see it. It's like, they're wrong. It isn't going to happen then. I'm old enough to remember 1988, and there was a book back then, and it was written by a guy named uh, Edgar Wisenhunt. And it was entitled, 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. And at that time, I was working with teenagers a lot, and I was traveling around. I was talking to this group of kids, and I remember there were a lot of people at that time who took that book so seriously that they were selling possessions, they were having pets put to sleep, because they really thought the end was near at that time. And I remember telling a group of teenagers, it's not going to happen in September of 1988, like Edgar Wisenhunt says, uh, because like I said, Jesus tells us that we don't know the day or the hour, that, but um, only the Father in heaven knows. So it's not going to happen. So let's not set those dates. But look at the next blessing of Revelation is that Revelation trains us to hear God's voice. Did you catch that? Revelation, as you read it, it helps shape your mind to understand how God's voice can come to you. And remember, John wrote in Revelation 1.10, on the Lord's day, he says, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. See? And you know, in our church, we're growing in something called the prophetic. And that's just a spiritual way of saying we're learning to hear from God for ourselves, you know. And hearing from God is not just for the pastor, priest, rabbi, or Jedi. It's for you, you know. It's for the people of God. Everyone can hear God's voice, right? And so there's this guy that was in one of my small groups this past year, uh, one of my tribes, you know, I was going through this thing called Alpha Course. And this guy was a spiritual investigator. He had not yet believed. And he said, you know, God's speaking to me, speaking really loud, but I just keep putting my earbuds in, you know? And you know what he was saying is that God was speaking loud like a trumpet to him, right? But he didn't want to listen because he didn't want to adjust his life to what God wanted him to do, you know? But God is speaking all the time and he speaks in these very creative ways and he's far too advanced and creative to just speak words to us, you know? He speaks heart to heart. I believe that in the kingdom, it'll be more like telepathy and less like just words as we're used to words. He gives us promptings in our hearts. And you can see with John and all throughout the Bible, he gives these prophetic visions with pictures and images. And, you know, John had to sit down and reflect and chew on it and think about what God was saying to him. And in the same way today, if you have dreams, it could just be a, a dream from eating a burrito supreme, you know, or it could be a God dream where you sit and by God's word, discern it. See, we don't through our words from God, add we don't add to the Bible, but we the Bible helps us to discern whether or not a word that we've received is something that's actually from God. But the Bible, if you want to understand it, you have to understand that it contains several different genres of literature, see? So in the Bible... You see, like, historical narrative, poetry, letters, prophecy, apocalyptic literature. And, you know, we live in a film society or a video society. We don't live in a physical book 
society. And so when you watch movies or film or video, you have a different lens through which you watch different kind of films, don't you? So how many of you have seen Star Wars? Raise your hand real quick. Okay. If you can't raise your hand right now, you should go home and watch that today uh, at my recommendation. But Star Wars is sci-fi, isn't it? So you watch sci-fi through a certain lens in your own mind. And how many of you like documentaries like Super Size Me? Anybody remember Super Size Me? Morgan Spurlock, you know, the guy that did the documentary about fast food and all of that. You watch documentaries different than you watch sci-fi. And some of you who watch YouTube all the time, maybe you've seen PewDiePie. Any PewDiePie fans? You know, a few uh, younger people like know who PewDiePie is, right? And he's one of the most subscribed uh, video guys on YouTube right now, and it's kind of a comedy satire style, but see these different forms of video, you think about them in a different way, don't you? And the same is true of books in the Bible. And so the interesting thing about Revelation is that it's actually a mashup, a mashup of three different types of literature. So Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature is a supernatural unveiling of the future. Oftentimes, it uses dreams and, you know, creative symbolism. But not only is Revelation apocalyptic, but it's also prophecy or prophetic. And so, prophecy is foretelling. Sometimes, you know, it tells the future. And it's telling forth the truth. So, it's speaking forth a truth about a current Reality, So it's prophetic, you know, prophecy, apocalyptic, and it's a letter. Have you ever read in the New Testament of the Bible, it says the epistle of such and such? Well, epistle is just a big word that means a letter that was written to someone, see? And Revelation is a letter that John wrote to encourage a historic group of people at a historic time uh, of the world. And so oftentimes the apostles would write letters for encouragement or instruction to a particular church at a particular time. See, so revelation is all three of these genres of literature. But look at the next blessing of revelation is that revelation reveals the power of our friend Jesus. Our friend Jesus is very, very powerful. And today I brought this picture of David Robinson when he came to church, came to our church here at City Tribe down here. And uh, you can see pictured there on screen, David Robinson and David Jr. and myself out, out in front of the church. And it was a big deal for those that were at that service. You know, he came to the early service and everybody else that came to church that day was mad that they didn't come to the early service, you know, that day. But anyways, uh, the thing about David Robinson is that when you see him on TV, you see him in a Spurs uniform, you know, you just realize how ripped that guy is. I mean, he's just in great shape. You know, his arms look very much like mine, except for out of humility, I cover mine up, you know. But anyways, uh, you know, he's just awesome, you know, and when you see him in his uniform, but when you see him in person, it dawns on you just how awesome this guy is. And so to give you a feel for it, you know, Sadie was telling us about how she was back there at the sound booth and she was standing on a chair working a camera and David was standing back there by the sound booth worshiping and he was still taller than her when she was standing on a chair, you know? And so when you see him in person, you just realize how awesome he is, man. And then 
another thing you realize about David was that just how cool he is and how gentle and kind and patient with people. You know, everybody wanted to take selfies with him and he was signing autographs and all that kind of, uh, of a thing. And so it was really cool to experience him in that way. But you know, the reason that all of us wanted to take pictures with David and see David, you know, get autographs and all that kind of stuff is because we love to associate ourselves with someone or something that's great, don't we? And that's a part of what John was experiencing as he sees this prophetic vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 14. It says, he's describing Jesus when he sees him in glory. And he says, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters in his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance and so think about it you know John was like one of Jesus best friends on the earth And they walked together, and John was experiencing the humble Jesus on earth. And now he's experiencing, like, Jesus as he really is. You know what I'm saying? Like, we could see David Robinson on television, but you see him in person. You realize he's a bigger deal. But with Jesus, it's an even bigger, bigger deal to see him in all of his glory. And look at what happened to John. John's, like, was homies with Jesus on earth. And then look at his reaction in the next verse. This is Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. He's like, he hits the ground, right? And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look at, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And that verse really shows us Jesus heart, right? Because he's like, Look, John, I know this is a lot right now, right? You know, this may be a little over the top, you know, the way I really am and everything. But, um, and and he sees his friend, you know, he knows it's going to affect his friend John in this way. And John's falling down in Jesus because he's got such a loving heart. He reaches down and says, hey, John, no need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. It's okay. And then Jesus is like, I need you to get your stuff together, John. You need to write some things down. So uh, he wants him to write down the three sections. Revelation contains three sections in it. And so Jesus said in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So these are the three sections of Revelation. The past is what you have seen. The present is what is now, and the future is what will take place. You see? And so that's kind of a mental framework to look at Revelation. And most of the people who study Revelation agree that the book is divided up into these main sections. Now, the discussion happens when you want to start putting chapter and verse to how you're going to break it up. And the majority of the conversation about Revelation centers around something that happens in chapter 20 that we're going to talk about in more detail when we get to it. But today, uh, I want you to understand that the majority of, I guess, controversy and discussion around Revelation has to do something called the millennium. Um, So would you uh, 
pull out your handout if you got it, and this is where you can write down a few terms. The first term I want you to understand is millennium. Could you say that word out loud with me, millennium, when I point to you? You ready? Here we go. Millennium. Good. Now, millennium just means 1,000. So when I say 1,000, you say millennium. When I say millennium, you say 1,000. Ready? Millennium. 1,000 is the? Very good. And so it's the 1,000 referring to the 1,000-year period in which Christ will reign on the earth. And we'll study it in more detail when we get to chapter 20. And I want to show you some different views of this millennium or of this uh, reign of Christ. The first one is post-millennialism. Say that loud, out loud with me, post-millennium, post-millennialism when I point to you. You ready? Here we go. Post-millennialism. And that's just the view that the world will eventually be Christianized and Christ will return at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace commonly called the millennium. And I'll show you a timeline on screen that gives you a feel for what post-millennialism looks like. On the left-hand side of the little chart, you'll see the cross of Christ where Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And then after Jesus' life, we entered into the millennium. It's not a thousand, a literal thousand years, but it's symbolic of a golden age in which the earth is eventually Christianized, And according to that viewpoint, once the world is sufficiently Christianized, then Jesus will return again uh, to the earth. So it's called post-millennialism because Jesus returns post or after the millennium. Makes sense? Now, a lot of people who hold to this viewpoint would go to websites like humanprogress.org and they would would say, hey, you know, according to this website, life is actually getting better for human beings these days. So this view makes sense, right? Uh, And I know even though we're in the midst of a pandemic and even though bad things happen in the world, uh, according to the stats, poverty is an all-time low. Treatment of women is better than it's been ever in the history of the world. And, uh, you know, also people have more access to healthcare than ever before. And so post-millennial people like that because they say the, the world is getting better and better. Now, where there's a little bit of a fly in the ointment for them is that the reason that, they, that post-millennialists say that the world is going to get better is because the world is being Christianized. And while Christianity is growing... According to a lot of researchers, specifically at Pew Research, they would say that the world would be majority Muslim by the year 2050. And so that wouldn't fit with the post-millennium viewpoint. But let me show you the next viewpoint. And that is called all millennialism. All millennialism. Say that with, with me out loud. Ready? Here we go. All millennialism. And this is the view that there will be no literal period of earthly reign of Christ either before or after his second coming. And this view is sometimes called realized millennialism because it espouses that believers experience the millennium now. So the millennium is really something more spiritual than literal. And if you look at the next timeline, you'll see that uh, at the left-hand side of this timeline, 
the cross of Christ happened, Jesus rose again from the dead, and then we entered into the millennium, which is not a literal thousand years, but it's symbolic of the present time in which we live, in which Jesus says we're to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and then at some time in the future, Jesus will come again. And so uh, one of the differences between all millennialism and post millennialism is that in all millennialism they believe that the world is not getting better like the post millennialists do. Does that make sense? So I know this is a lot to think about and this is kind of an attractive view and I'll tell you why because it does a good job of emphasizing that the kingdom of God is here and now, that it's right now. Remember how Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here, it's now. Another thing that this book does is, is it does a good job recognizing the historical context in which John was writing the book of Revelation to a specific group of people at a specific time in world history. See, they'd say, hey, why do you keep making this book about the future when it really was primarily to encourage a group of people at a specific time in history? And all millennial scholars would say that the book of Revelation was written in code to encourage persecuted Christians, and it was written in code so that the Roman oppressors would not know really that it was talking about them, and it would encourage these believers who were being persecuted without causing more trouble in their lives. Now, this uh, viewpoint of all millennialism uh, is held by most Presbyterians, probably most uh, Catholics, Catholic scholars, this was the viewpoint of most of my college professors and most of the professors that I had when I was getting my master's degree in theology. And so it's a fairly popular view, but let me show you the next view, and it's called pre-millennialism. So say that one with me out loud. Ready? Here we go. Pre-millennialism. So pre, it's like Jesus comes before the millennium, and millennium means what? Thousand, some of you almost forget, and a thousand years is the millennium. So this is the belief that Christ will return and then set up a period of his earthly reign for 1,000 years. Now, there are several terms that you have to understand, and those are on your handout. You can just fill them in there if you're a note taker to understand pre-millennial theology. And by the way, for the sake of time, I can't handle today the two different kinds of pre-millennialism, but I'll deal with those in the future. But one term you need to understand is the church age, and that's just the age that we're in right now where God's presence on the earth is in and through his church. And then there's the word tribulation. And the tribulation is a seven-year period in which the Antichrist, and by the way, the, the Greek word for Antichrist is Kawhi Leonard. And so that's, uh, that's the Antichrist there. But the Antichrist takes over the world and <laughs> those who don't submit to his rule will be persecuted on the earth. But let me show you another uh, term to understand in Premillennialism, and that is the rapture. Okay, say the word rapture with me. Ready? Rapture. There we go. And that's an event in which Christ will remove the church from the world, and the church is raptured up to meet Jesus in the air. And according to the premillennialist, uh, that comes from First Thessalonians chapter four, verse. 13. And so this is an interesting view. And let me show you a chart that I guess describes pre-millennialism. Um, and it would show us that Jesus died and rose again. And now after Jesus died and rose again, we're in what's called the church age right now. 
where God expresses himself on the earth through the church. And in some point in the future, there'll be what some would call a secret rapture, where the church is raptured up out of the world. And by the way, there are different views on when the rapture will take place, and we'll deal with that in future services. But then uh, there's a seven-year of tribulation where the Antichrist comes into power. And then at the end of that seven years, Jesus will come back with his faithful followers and open up a can on the devil, the Antichrist and all of that. And at the second coming, the battle of Armageddon will happen and Jesus will make everything right. And then the millennium will happen and there'll be a literal thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. And this view of premillennialism is by far the most popular view in the United States. And this is the view, to be honest with you, that I lean in the direction of. I have some uh, real premillennial leanings. Even though I'm sympathetic to the other views, I really lean in this direction. This is the view of most of the popular, I guess, authors and pastors that most of you have perhaps been exposed to. People like John Piper, John MacArthur are premillennial. And this view says, sure, a lot of revelation can be written in code and can be symbolic. And it also has future implications. So the kingdom of God is now and not yet. It's now and the future. See? So the view of revelation that I resonate with the most, though, even more than I resonate with premillennialism is a term I made up, and it's called pragmatic millennialism, okay? Some people call it pan-millennialism, which means it's all going to pound out in the end, you know, is kind of the old joke. And the way I think about it is I don't want to fight and divide friendships over end times views, and it's kind of like one ancient guy said, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. So there's close-handed doctrine and there's open-handed doctrines, right? Close-handed doctrines are things that we have to hold on to no matter what. The Bible is inspired by God, you know, that the only way to salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Got to hold on to that. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, the Trinity got to hold on to that no matter what. But then there's open-handed theology. Like, what do you believe about the gift of tongues and speaking in tongues? And what do you believe about predestination and all that? Or what do you believe about the end times? Okay, look, if we disagree about our end times views, we're still friends, okay? We're, we can all get along together. I'm not going to do a drive-by at your house, you know. We're still going to be okay with each other. Um, so we just say uh, that it's all good. We, we can still be friends even if we disagree on this. And the reason that I'm pragmatic at millennialism is because I love you guys and I want you to be prepared. And what if these guys teach the millennium and the book of Revelation it can only be one way? And then it doesn't turn out their way. And their congregations are not going to be prepared if they were wrong on this one issue. See? So I wanted to show you some of the different views, and then you can make up your own minds. But you should know, just be prepared however it turns out. Look, I'm not teaching you this so you have information to out-argue your Christian friends. I'm teaching you this so that you can be prepared for something. So look, if the all-millennial people are right and there's not going to be any antichrist or, you know, there's not going to be like a seven years of tribulation or a rapture or any of that, 
That's all good with me. I'm fine. I do not care if that doesn't happen that way. But if the premillennial theologians are right and the Christians all of a sudden like disappear from the earth, dude, you need to think about your relationship with God right then, right? Furthermore, if there comes a world leader that is so winsome and everybody loves him, and all of a sudden he wants you to take a mark on your forehead or your right hand that somehow symbolizes 666, my strong suggestion is do not take that mark, okay? Do not take the mark of the beast for crying out loud. You know, it'll be 666, Koi Leonard. So anyway, that, that's the mark of the, the beast, and we just want you to be prepared. And the point is to keep watch and live with the end in mind. Look at how Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. He says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other one left. Two women will be grinding with the handmill. One will be taken, the other one will be left. Look at this last part. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. You don't know. The point is to be prepared, patiently prepared. Can I show you three ways to be patiently prepared, to be living with the end in mind? Number one, repent if you need to. Repent, that's just a big word that means to change your mind and actions about behaviors. When Jesus comes again, you don't want to be gossiping about someone else when Jesus is coming. When Jesus comes again or when the rapture happens, however it works out, you don't want to be looking at porn on your phone. You don't want to be in bed with someone you're not married to. You don't want to be at odds with someone that, you know, is a friend or a family member when Paul clearly tells us in Romans, as long as it depends on you, be at peace with all people, right? So repent if you need to. But number two, while we're between the trees, plant a tree. Let me explain what I mean by that. And that's just an old phrase that's been around for a long time because in the first book of the Bible of Genesis, remember there's a tree of life. Then you have the whole Bible and you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation and there's another tree there in the New Jerusalem, Right? And so the idea is while you're between those two trees, you plant a tree. That is, you plant the seeds of the kingdom of God in this world. You do so by caring for the poor. You do so by being a peacemaker between people that can't get along because they're too aggravated about their politics. You do that by being an ultimate kind of a peacemaker that helps people come to peace with God through Jesus Christ and initiating conversations with people about Jesus so that they can come to know him, see? This is what it means to live with the end in mind. And you know, these believers that John wrote to in Asia Minor, they were going through persecution under Emperor Domitian of Rome. And he commanded that they call him God or he would kill them. 
and many of them lost their lives. But did you know that 30 or 40 years after Domitian was gone, there were parts of Asia Minor that became as much as 80% Christianized. How did that happen? These people, they didn't have a bunch of Christian podcasts and sermons that they could listen to online. They didn't have like Spotify worship playlists. They didn't have Christian bumper stickers and t-shirts and a bunch of church merch. They had a letter called Revelation. And they not only listened to it, but they took it to heart and lived it. And it changed their world. They lived with the end in mind. And that leads me to the third thing that we can do to live with the end in mind, practically speaking. And that is make sure that your eternal soul is secured in relationship with God. Look, you don't want to get there someday and find out your destination is going to be anywhere but where Jesus is, right? We want to be where Jesus is. And, you know, it's simple to do. You just believe that when he died on the cross, he died there for your sin. And I wanted to kind of wrap up our conversation together like we started it at a funeral. Several years ago, I resided over the funeral of my wife's grandmother who passed away, you know, some years ago. And we called her Manaw. And just before Manaw's funeral, you know, she'd been in the hospital. And in the hospital, she didn't care about her skin. You know how ladies care a lot about their skin? You know, it's like, it's got to be tan skin. It's got to be exfoliated skin, you know. Has to be Botoxed skin or whatever, right? You know, and ladies, don't get me wrong. We're really glad you do that, okay? I'm just telling you that. But, you know, uh, Manaw didn't care about her skin. Because at that point in life, her skin was hanging on her like a wet shirt. She also didn't care about her hair. You know how ladies care a lot about their hair? It's got to be highlighted just right. It's got to be the right color. It's got to have the swoop. It's got to be permed. It's got to be straightened or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that, ladies. But you know, at this stage of life, Mana didn't care about her hair. It was white, matted down on a hospital pillow. She also didn't care about her portfolio. She was wise with her money, no doubt about that. But she knew that it didn't matter how much money she had in her accounts. It couldn't buy her one more nanosecond on this earth. And at her funeral, people were able to stand up and honor her. Her friends, her family, people in the community from her church honored her. Because she had lived with the end in mind. She had served people. And you know, everybody walked out of that funeral with peace and hope. Because Mana, Blanche Reinhardt, believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for her sin and rose again to give her new life. She lived with the end in mind. And I believe that God brought some of you onto this streaming service or into this room today to be changed, 
to be adopted by the one that reaches down to you and says, no need to be afraid, my child. I just want love relationship with you. And I'm not playing a game by waiting, but I'm just being patient because I want to draw you in close to experience my grace, my mercy, my love. See? So with that in mind, how about we pray? And as we talk to him just for a minute, perhaps you'd want to say something to God like this. If you've been seeking him and now want a relationship with him and he's speaking to your heart, don't put your earbuds in and close him out. But just talk to him in your own heart, your heart to his, and say, look, God, I know I've sinned. And right now, the best I know how, I am making a choice to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I welcome you into my life, Jesus. And I'm going to choose to walk with you for the rest of my life. And as we continue in prayer, there are a lot of us that have known him for many, many years. And today's not just another service, but it dawns on us that we don't have that much time. He may come again or we may die. But either way, we have a limited amount of time here on the earth with which to make an impact. And some of us, like me, I'm at the front of the line on this one. It's like, God, I sometimes wonder if I'm just getting a little too comfortable here on this earth. And maybe it's time for me to step out and try some new things to bring your kingdom here. Step out in faith in some new ways because the time is near. And because God, I don't want to waste my life want to waste it but I want to live now with the end in mind thank you for what you're doing among us Jesus by your spirit and we pray all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit everyone said amen amen well as we wrap up today our prayer leaders are going to be right outside the prayer tent to pray with you if that'd be helpful for you. Now, next week, we're going to continue studying through Revelation, and we're going to start looking at the seven churches, and we're going to do one church per week. So next week is going to be Ephesus, and they're the ones that left their first love. You know, if you ever kind of come to church and you've been coming, you've known the Lord, and you're kind of doing it, you're not really doing anything wrong, but you've just kind of lost that fire in your heart for the Lord, your first love. Well, next week, we're going to rekindle our first love for Jesus in our hearts next week. So make sure and come on back for that study and worship experience. And, you know, um, one of the ways that we worship is through our financial stewardship. You know, we always talk about bringing a first fruit tithe to the storehouse. And I just want to encourage you guys for some of the things that you're investing in here at the church. If you see Rebecca Salazar around here somewhere, just encourage her if you know who that is. Um, she's been giving some leadership to City Youth. And I was here Wednesday night and man, City Youth is blowing up. And so it was just amazing, the worship experience. They've gone through Alpha Course. They've, they're taking a brief break and they'll start back up and they're going to be going through uh, I Am Not Defeated. And man, our students are just on fire for the Lord right now. It's a great thing to be a part of. And so anybody that you know that volunteers at City, just encourage them and encourage Rebecca for the amazing work that they're doing here. Another thing, can I tell you, that you guys are investing in? 
is uh, Cultivate. And you know, my wife leads Cultivate, and, and I don't often brag on her, but man, she's just doing an amazing job at that. You know, she's the better looking one of the two of us. You know, my eyebrows are a lot better, but she's better looking <laughs> overall. And man, the folks that just got back from the Cultivate retreat, I mean, they went through a whole process of, you know, hurts and, and healing and the like. And um, they just got back from their retreat and they're like glowing, all of them. They're like Moses coming down off the mountain. You know, this is like strong in the force they are, but you know, it says the force of the Holy Spirit. But they, they just had an amazing time. And so at, at some point in the future when Cultivate starts up again, if you want to be a part of it, man, it'd be powerful. But you know the reason that I love and friends I know that, you know, donate money here? We love investing in stuff that really does change people. You know, I've given it places before to just make myself feel better. But when I donate here, I know that it really does something in someone's life. And I just want to say thank you, each and every one. I get that if you're not a Christian, you'll buy into all this. You, you shouldn't, you know, you don't have to participate in all that. We don't think anything of that. But those of us that are, we don't want to just live with the end in mind. Because we know that when you live with the end in mind, you give with the end in mind. And I don't want to get to the end and God say, man, you just blew your money on all this stupid stuff and didn't invest it in stuff that's important to the kingdom of God. And so we bring the first fruit tithe here at the local storehouse, which is the church. And here's how to get it done at City Tribes since we don't pass buckets or plates. You can, if you're watching online, donate by mail. You just mail it to the P.O. Box number that's on the screen. Or online, you can go to citytribe.church slash tithe. Or you, if you do everything by text, you can just follow the instructions on screen and uh, text to tithe. Or in person, you can go to the giving stations that are located near the exits of the theater. So before you guys worship through your generosity, just pray to the Lord. And I want to get you to stand up and speak a word of benediction over you. And if you're with your crew, go ahead and put an arm around one of your crew or whatever. And, you know, if you're not with your crew, you know, just kind of give them an airwave or whatever like that, you know. And by the way, don't be creepy guy, you know, creepy guy that like you're standing next to a woman, you grab her hand like, hey, baby, what's going on? It's not, it's not like that. It's not what this is for. But um, let me just speak a brief word of benediction over you guys real quick before you could take off and worship through generosity. Hey, dear brothers and sisters, walk from this place, not afraid, but at peace, knowing that your good God is preparing you not just for something great here on the earth, but something great in the future. Walk from here in repentance and change because you've been changed by the power of God's word. Walk from here and look forward to not just the day of your funeral, but look forward to the real beginning when you stand before God and he tells you, well done, good and faithful servant. Walk from here, living with the end in mind. You guys have an amazing Sunday. We'll see you next time. Peace. We're glad you were part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.